as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? This morning I'd like to ask you a profound question. Have you ever been thirsty? Maybe you went on a hike, ran out of water. I've been there. Maybe you've played on a sports team and your coach made you run 30 suicides. You're dying of thirst. Maybe you've done yard work in the heat of summer. Maybe you came to church here in July and it was 7,000 degrees outside and 300% humidity and you were thirsty. Whatever it is, then it's likely this morning that you know what it is to thirst. When you're thirsty, you crave what your body needs most. It goes beyond your mind. Your whole body aches for water. You've got tunnel vision. You can't think of anything else because water is not a matter of preference. So, you know, I think I might drink water today. No, water is vital to life. You can go, did you know this? You can go weeks without food. You can only go days without water. Well, it's no accident that when God wants to describe the human condition, he uses the metaphor of thirst. Being human is a lot like being thirsty. Uh, As humans, we recognize that we're intuitively missing something, and we long for whatever that something is, something that's fundamental to life, something we desperately need. That's not controversial. Everyone's looking to be satisfied in life. The question is, where will you go to quench your soul's thirst? The world will offer you no shortage of pleasures, distractions, and empty philosophies telling you that you can find satisfaction for your soul in them. But in the end, all of those pursuits are like drinking ocean water to quench a desperate thirst. And I can tell you by experience... That doesn't go well. So where do you go to quench a thirst like this? Well, our psalmist this morning had no question. You know, if there was one thing you could reliably ask of anyone in ancient Israel, it was the location of the nearest source of drinking water. In an era, and in an arid and hot climate before indoor plumbing... Your very survival depended on knowing the location of the nearest reliable source of drinking water. Well, the Bible's not exaggerating when it tells you that you have a thirst that nothing in this world can satisfy. So where can you quench your thirst? Well, the uniform witness of God's word from Old to New Testament is this, that your spiritual thirst can only be quenched in God himself. My soul thirsts for the living God, the psalmist says. Where can I go and meet with God? Well, that's the question that Jesus wants to answer for us this morning in John chapter 7. And the good news of Jesus, of course, is this, that he came to earth so that you could have living waters which eternally satisfy your soul, which forever quench your thirst. So let's pick up in John 7, verse 37, as I quench my physical thirst. 
verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and as we sang, we plead with you, Speak, O Lord. For whatever man can bring from the pulpit is of no value unless you attend it by your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, we confess, I confess, I can do nothing apart from you. And we ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word and prepare my heart and my mouth to proclaim your truth. Lord, we are so excited to behold your glory. Please reveal yourself in your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. We're training them up young here. So I'd like to begin by setting the scene as Jesus gives the offer of living waters. Uh, reminder of last week, Jesus is at the Feast of Booths. Well, what is the Feast of Booths, also known as the Festival of Tabernacles? It's a week-long festival, which was uh, half campout, half barbecue, half worship service. Math was not my... Forte. Camp out. The Israelites would build tents and they would live in them to commemorate their wilderness wanderings. Barbecue. They had sacrifices and they were eating these large feasts together and worship service. They would worship God throughout the festival. The entire festival was designed to promote gratitude in the people of God for the way that he had continually cared for them, particularly in the wilderness wanderings after the exodus. Now Jesus, he shows up halfway through this feast, and we saw last week that as he proclaims the truth about himself, people are mesmerized and also infuriated. He has this polarizing effect. Some people bow down and worship him as God. Some people are convinced he's a charlatan and want him arrested. Well, on every day of the feast, there was a certain ceremony that took place. And what would happen is the high priest and his uh, priestly entourage and lots of people, they would go to the pool of Siloam and they would draw water from the pool of Siloam and then they would have this incredible procession with singing and dancing and trumpets and timbrels. I'm not exactly sure what a timbrel is. I know it's musical. And they would proceed like a scene out of an Aladdin musical from, from the pool of Siloam. They'd go all the way to the temple and... I mean, it sounds like a ton of fun, but they would, they would pour water into a silver bowl, they'd pour wine into a silver bowl, and along with other sacrifices, they would pour out the water and the wine as a drink offering before the Lord. And as they did this, they were looking back to the way that God had provided water for Israel. You, you recall in the wilderness wanderings, they were going around the desert, they didn't have reliable water. And so God provided water to, to satisfy his people's thirst gushing out of a rock. And so they looked back to that and they looked forward to God's provision in the future. Well, that's the background for Jesus' words today. They had just seen the high priest pour out this water before the Lord. 
And on the last day of the feast, Jesus, he stands up and he says, All who are thirsty, come to me and drink. It's no accident that Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says that Jesus was the rock that Moses struck. He says, come to me and thirst. Well, let's break this down. I want to break down Jesus' words here. First of all, he says, those who thirst. So we established in our introduction this morning that everyone thirsts. That to be human is to thirst for God. Why is that? Well, because you were created for fellowship with God. Remember back to the garden. What was God's design? He made Adam and Eve. He placed them into a garden, a well-watered garden. And the Lord God himself walked in the garden with the creatures whom he crafted in his own image, spending time with them, talking with them, giving them the gift of his presence. That was the design for humanity, to be in fellowship with their creator. And that's the tragedy of the fall, that when sin entered into the world and separated us from a holy and righteous God, we lost something that we were created to enjoy. It's like trying to drive a car without a motor. There's something missing in the human experience. And so we thirst for what we desperately need, which is fellowship with our Creator. But we thirst because in our sin, we don't have it. Well, it's to these people that Jesus says, come to me and drink. You see, the reason the gospel is so wonderful is the same reason it's rejected as unbelievable. Jesus offers the free grace of God and fellowship with God as a gift to be received through faith, but it can't be earned. He says to the thirsty, come to me and drink. How do you drink? Ask the woman at the well. Jesus likes these water metaphors. What did he say to her? He says, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink, and I would have given you living water that will become a spring of water in you, welling up to eternal life. Well, how did she drink of that water? She believed in Jesus, and so did most of that Samaritan town. Jesus is showing us that to drink of him is to believe in him. And that's what the parallelism in verse 38 shows us. Now, the gospel is different from human religion. Human religion says, before you come to God, you must prove yourself worthy of God. Clean yourself up. Be morally pure. Work hard. Do good. And then maybe you can think about coming to God. The gospel says you can't be good enough for God. You can spend your whole life trying. Imagine with me... Indulge my illustration for a moment. Imagine with me a guy, a uh, plane crash, goes down in the middle of the Sahara. He miraculously survives. But he's alone in the middle of the Sahara Desert. He's beaten and bruised and bleeding. And he hobbles for miles on a broken leg through the hot, dry desert. His mouth is parched. His wounds won't even bleed for lack of water. And he comes upon an oasis. And he sees a large, bubbling spring of cold, clear water. Dear friends, we are that man before we came to Christ. 
And if you're not in Christ this morning, that's who you are now, hobbling through the desert, dying of thirst. Now, many approach God through human religion. And human religion is represented by a man guarding the spring. And he says to the thirsty man on death's door, if you want to drink from my spring, you need to show yourself worthy. And here's a long list of tasks and commandments and rules for you to follow if you want to drink from my spring. And so the man goes forth trying to prove himself worthy, but he's already hobbling on one leg on death's door. So as he seeks to, to do the list, he falls over and he dies. That's human religion. It tells men and women who are dying of thirst to prove themselves worthy before it gives them a drink. And so they try, and you can pick your system of religion. But the end result is that they perish. Enter Jesus. Jesus stood at the feast on that day, and he is different than human religion. Jesus is the ruler of the eternal oasis with plentiful springs of water. And Jesus looked around Jerusalem on that day, and he saw thousands dying of thirst, spiritual thirst. And you know what Jesus didn't tell him? He didn't say, you need to try harder to keep the Ten Commandments. He didn't advocate asceticism. He didn't say, prove yourself worthy, enter into a monastery. More in line with our culture today. He also didn't say, you're just fine the way you are. You just need to embrace who you are. Em embrace yourself, believe in yourself. If you identify as well hydrated, then you are well hydrated. No, both of those are false gospels. And if you tell either of those to the man limping through the desert on death's door, he dies. The first tells a dying, thirsty man he needs to work harder before you give him water. And so he tries, finds himself unable, and then dies. The second one, and this is, again, probably more common in our current culture, it tells a dying and thirsty man that he is fine just the way he is. You just need to believe in yourself. But we've already established he's not okay. He's hobbling through the desert, dying of thirst. And so, believing that nothing is wrong with him, he doesn't seek to quench that thirst, and he also falls down in the desert heat and expires. Enter Jesus. What does Jesus say? Jesus turns to the thousands like that man on that day, dying of thirst, dying to know God who made them to know him. And he said to all who are thirsty, come to me and drink. This is a free offer from God to his people. But very few thirsty sinners take that step. Why do very few sinners take that step? Two reasons. One, you have to have the humility to recognize that you are not enough, that you are not okay the way you are, and that you cannot make yourself good enough for God. You have to recognize that you have a thirst that nothing can quench but God himself. This means recognizing that you are a sinner. You have offended a holy God, and if left to your own devices in this desert called life, you will expire like the man in the desert. 
Only those who recognize that about themselves come to Jesus. The second reason many fail to come to Jesus to drink is because not only do you have to recognize your need, you have to recognize Jesus is the one who can truly quench your thirst. Jesus says, come to me and drink. But no one comes to Jesus unless they believe he is the fountain of life, that he really is God, that he really died on the cross to take away the punishment for your sins and mine. That's what he did for us. He earned our righteousness before God, and he offers it freely. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't address in this group that there might be some here this morning who are thirsty for God. And if you are, Jesus still speaks to you. And he says, come to me and drink. Come to me and drink. How do you do that? Well, you come to Jesus. And you say, you are my Lord. You're my God. I need you. I can't do it on my own. And you turn from your sins. And in faith, you turn to Christ. Say, I want to follow you. That's what it means to, be, to become a follower of Christ. That's what it means to drink of Jesus. Well, Jesus says, anyone who thirsts, come to me and drink. What happens to those who drink? Let's look at what he says in verse 38. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You know, if you drink a glass of water, you will be satisfied for a few hours. And then later on, you'll need to drink some more, because that's how hydration works. But the water which Jesus offers is fundamentally different. First of all, it's spiritual, so it meets a different thirst. Jesus calls it living water. It's water which is alive. And if you drink this living water, then Jesus says from within a person will flow rivers of the stuff. So the thirsty man comes to a well or comes to a, a spring of water and he himself is satisfied. He's saturated. He's overflowing with the stuff. Because the water which God gives to you is eternal and infinite. It is eternally satisfying. It doesn't end. Dear friends, that's what it means to know God, to drink of the water which Jesus gives you. If we keep reading in verse 39, we find that this living water is the Holy Spirit. So, Jesus is using a metaphor. He says, if you believe in me, I'll give you living waters. What is living waters? the Holy Spirit. And Jesus also says that the Old Testament predicted this. So this is a metaphor. Jesus will give the Spirit to his people. To drink of Jesus is to receive the Spirit. But up to this point, verse 39, the Spirit had not yet been given. And in John 14, Jesus shows us that the Spirit will be given to his disciples later. We have a slide here in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Jesus was the first helper, the Spirit is the next. And he will be with you forever. Who is this helper? The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. 
That's an important prepositional phrase there at the end. He says to his disciples then, you know him for he dwells with you, but there is a time in the future when he will be in you. Jesus will give to his disciples the Spirit. He's promising a greater knowledge and experience of the Holy Spirit. He's promising the indwelling of the Spirit for his disciples. That's what it means to have living waters flowing out of you. It means that you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart. Do you realize the craziness of what I just said? If you don't believe that what I just said is crazy, do this for me. Tomorrow when you're at work, go to one of your coworkers and say, Hey, I just found out that I have the Spirit of the living God dwelling within me because I drank of Jesus Christ. Tell me what they say. This is a remarkable thing, guys. If you are in Christ through faith, this means that the eternal God who created everything you see and everything you don't lives within you by his spirit. You should be saying, whoa, that's amazing. Now they were taking Jesus' word for it. The spirit was with them, but he was not yet in them. That would happen after Jesus' ascension at Pentecost. You recall the story? Acts chapter 2. Jesus' disciples are gathered together. And suddenly there, was, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And notice this. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So at Pentecost, Jesus filled his disciples with the Holy Spirit. Now this reception of living water, as Jesus points out, this indwelling of the Spirit was predicted in the Old Testament. The, the prophets, if you read them, many of them talked about this time called the last days. And in these last days, which we are currently living in, it's Jesus' first coming to his second coming. In these last days, God would pour out his spirit into his people. There's these promises all over the place. Now, as point of fact, Peter, immediately after receiving the spirit there in Acts chapter 2, launches into this incredible sermon in Jerusalem. And he begins by quoting one of those prophets who made that promise. Uh, the prophet was Joel. How many of you got up this morning and read Joel? Neither did I. But, but Peter here in Acts chapter 2, and he's, he's preaching this sermon, he's quoting from Joel chapter 2, 28 to 32. Let's look at what he says. So he's quoting the prophet Joel to explain what's going on. He says, In these last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved or consider another passage which says the same thing in Ezekiel 36 he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit 
I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. What happens when that happens? And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. All right, so we just hit two of them. There's a lot more. But the Jewish people were looking forward to this day when God, as he did at the rock at Sinai, which poured forth water for the people to satisfy their physical thirst, they're waiting for the day that God will pour forth his spirit into his people. And they were waiting for that to happen. But Jesus said in John 16, I have to go first, and it's good for me to go so that I can send you the helper. Now, here's the implication of this outpouring. This is where it gets kind of cool. Think about this, Christian. You, if you are in Christ, you experience the Holy Spirit in a way that the Old Testament saints didn't. Do you realize that? You have been indwelt by the Spirit. Now, we know the Spirit is eternal. We know he was at work in the Old Testament. Some are said to have the Spirit resting on them or clothing them. But those tend to be the leaders or the prophets in Israel. The promise of the new covenant, as opposed to the old, is that not just some, but all who believe in the name of Jesus are filled with the Spirit. And the Spirit flows out like rivers of living water. Now, justification. We know a person is justified by faith. They were in the Old Testament, they are in the New. Abraham believed God, it was credited to him him as righteousness. So when we're talking justification, we're saying we experience the same justification, but in Christ you experience a greater blessing, and that is the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life in a way that they did not have. That should also cause you to say, whoa. That's why Paul can say in Galatians, The law was a tutor. It was a guide until Christ came. Well, there's a great example of this in the life of the Apostle Peter, right? So Peter was born under the Old Covenant, born under the law. He died under the New Covenant and under grace. Recall Peter after three years with Jesus, after boldly proclaiming at the Lord's Supper, I would die before I denied you, Jesus. And recall that Peter is standing in the courtyard of the high priest as Jesus is on trial. He's standing by a fire, and a a little Jewish girl comes up to him and says, Hey, aren't you a Galilean? I, I think I've seen you with that Jesus guy. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? And Peter's like, No, you're thinking of that other guy that looks just like me. I don't know that Jesus guy. I'm just trying to stay warm. But then, roughly 50 days later, right after the Spirit descends at Pentecost, Peter stands up, not before one little girl, he stands up before the entire city of Jerusalem, before all of those folks who in chapter 19 were shouting, crucify him. And Peter goes to them and he says, O house of Israel, remember that you got Jesus crucified. His blood is on your hands. But guess what? He didn't stay dead. God raised him from the dead, and we are all witnesses that God has made him Lord and Christ, and he reigns over the earth. And the amazing thing is, fearless Peter here accuses the crowd of killing Jesus, and they own it. (laughs) 
They feel the guilt of their actions. They're cut to the heart with guilt. And what do they say? They say, what shall we do? Maybe this morning you feel the guilt of your own sins. And you say, what should I do? I've offended God. Well, here's the good news. Jesus says, come to me and drink. Peter says, repent and be baptized. And they do. And 3,000 people are added to the church on that day. Later on, Peter and John get arrested. And they go before the Sanhedrin. And they tell the Sanhedrin, you guys got Jesus killed. (laughs) They tell Peter and John to stop preaching. They're like, thanks but no thanks. I'm going to keep preaching. So what's the difference in Peter? I mean, this is a guy who saw Jesus transfigured in all his glory. This is a guy who walked on water, saw Lazarus raised from the dead. And yet, in, in fear, the question of a little girl got him to deny the King of kings and Lord of lords. What, what happened to Peter? Did he start working out? Start listening to self-help podcasts? No. The difference is the spirit. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came to dwell in Peter and it made him fearless and it made him fruitful. Dear friends, when Jesus calls you to believe, he promises to give you that same spirit. And if you have believed then you have the same spirit within you that Peter did. Drink deeply of those waters. Okay, so you say I have access to living waters. It wells up within me. Let me ask you this. What do you do in troubled time and where do you drink? When life is pressing down on you, when you're exhausted, when you're feeling stressed out, you're anxious and worried, maybe you're heartbroken over a failed relationship, someone close to you has passed away, someone you love is caught in a self-destructive spiral, maybe it's late at night and you're just bored. Where do you go to drink when you're feeling thirsty? Far too often, even for those in Christ, when we hit crisis, we start feeling thirsty. We, we want to be satisfied. Life is pressing down on us. And in, in these difficult times, instead of drinking deeply at the well of salvation, instead of hydrating our souls with living water, we forget that the Spirit of God dwells within us. And we go to the very things that we used to try to satisfy ourselves with before we came to Christ. Maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you're trying to numb yourself with sin or distract yourself from a difficult situation with sin. I plead with you, don't forget, you have the spirit of the living God dwelling within you. Jesus says, if you're evil and you know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will your heavenly Father give the spirit, is what he says, to those who ask. Why go to empty jars and broken cisterns looking for a drop of water when you possess living waters and rivers of it? If you're stressed, go to God. If you're anxious, go to God. If you're fearful, go to God. If you're tempted by sin, go to God. If you're disappointed with life, go to God. If you're depressed, go to God. If you're heartbroken, thank you, David. You guys are quick. The offer of living water is not just for the one who doesn't know Christ. It's a reminder for the one who possesses those waters and is tempted to drink from other fountains. 
Well, let's continue on. Let's finish chapter 7. I promise second point's not as long as the first. Pick up with me in verse 40. So Jesus has made this bold claim. It says this. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. We've had the offer of living waters, and now we turn to a divided and thirsty world. Last week we saw that when Jesus taught about himself, he divided the people. Here in verse 40, some think he's the prophet. It's the prophet promised by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. Some think he could be the Christ. And yet others bring this objection. They say, isn't the Christ supposed to be a descendant of David? Isn't he supposed to come from Bethlehem? And the irony, of course, is that both of those things are true. Jesus was descended from David. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. If only they had been listening to more Christmas music. Maybe we should close with O Little Town of Bethlehem. Is it too early to do Christmas songs? It's never too early. That's what I'm hearing. Well, not only did Jesus divide the people, he divided the leaders. He divided the Levites. Last week we saw the Sanhedrin send the popo, so to speak, the Levitical temple police, to arrest Jesus. We saw that in verse 33. 32 says this, that when the, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. These were Levites. They were like temple guards. And they sent them to go arrest Jesus. So they go to do their job, but then they come back empty-handed. And the Pharisees and the chief priests are saying, what, what, what went on? Why didn't you bring him in? Well, apparently they had gone to arrest him. They waited for their moment to do so. And they started listening to the guy. And they were mesmerized. They, just, they, they came back. They said, why didn't you bring him in? They said, no one ever spoke like this guy. And that was the wrong thing to say to these guys. The Sanhedrin, the, the chief priests, which are the Sadducees and, the, and the, the Pharisees, their response is essentially, really? Are you that thick? And they indict themselves actually in two ways. Here's how they indict themselves as bad leaders. Number one, they say, have any of the religious leaders believed in him? Have any of the Pharisees or the leaders of the people, have we believed in him? Implication, then why would you believe in him when we're so much better than you? Of course, there's another irony going on here too, isn't there? 
because Jesus really is God. And the only people in this narrative who are truly blind to that fact are the ones who are claiming to see things clearly. So they indict themselves with their unbelief. Secondly, they indict themselves as bad shepherds. Look at verse 49. They say, This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So who is this crowd? Who are these people? These are faithful Jews that have gathered from all over Judea and Galilee, and maybe some of them are even from the exile. They've gathered into Jerusalem to celebrate a feast which the law tells them to celebrate. Which means that these people gathered there are their sheep. Look at the attitude that the shepherds take toward their sheep. They call them accursed and ignorant. And of course the response is, well, if the sheep are ignorant of the law, whose fault is that? Is it not the shepherd? Dear friends, that's why shepherds should be teaching God's word. Listen, I could come up with short, maybe you'd like that, but short, entertaining, funny, self-help, human philosophy type sermons week after week, and they would be of no eternal or even temporal profit for you. Because that's not what God has given me to do. He's called me to feed the sheep, not with my own wisdom, but with the wisdom that comes from his word. And by the way, sheep, you can feed yourselves as well. There's a lot of ways to read your Bible. So shepherds should be teaching God's word. I mean, just just contrast this for a moment. Contrast this with the scene from Nehemiah. And I know not many of you were here when we went through Nehemiah, but if you can, for those of you who were in Nehemiah chapter 8, All the exiles have come back from Babylon and Persia and they're gathered in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah calls Ezra the priest and he tells Ezra to read the law of God to the people of God. And so Ezra does this and these people stand day after day and they listen to the law. And Ezra has all these Levites on platforms next to them and they're interpreting the law for the people. Isn't that a remarkable difference? In Nehemiah, Ezra has the Levites ministering the word of God. In Jesus' day, the Levites, the leaders have the Levites trying to arrest the word of God, prevent the word of God from going to his people. Now, the, the parallel is, of course, that in Nehemiah's day, they were celebrating the Feast of Booths, the very same feast. And day after day, they would come and they would listen to the law of God being read to them. And they were cut to the heart because what the law does is it reveals to us that we're thirsty, that we need to drink from the everlasting springs of life, from God himself. And so they repented and turned in faith to Jesus. But these authorities in Jesus' day, they're not interested in teaching the sheep. They're interested in puffing themselves up and appearing wise, being quite learned. Listen, it's a dangerous thing when the religious authorities forget God. They stop caring for the sheep. Enter Nicodemus. Nicodemus is watching this interaction. You remember Nicodemus visited Jesus back in chapter 3. And the Pharisees are saying, have any of us believed? 
Nicodemus is like awkwardly fidgeting in his chair, <laughs> not sure what to say. He finally speaks up. He goes, guys, we're not really going by the book here. That arrest attempt was a little heavy-handed. Seems like we're jumping the gun a little bit. You know, does our law condemn a guy before we even hear from him? And of course, the other Pharisees respond irrationally and in anger. And they say, what, are you from Galilee too? Revealing their prejudice against another place full of Jews. And they say, search and find, look into it. No prophet arises in Galilee. Now the interesting thing about that claim is that you will find that claim nowhere in the Bible. <laughs> in fact, Jonah and Nahum arose in Galilee. So you're not going to find it in the Old Testament. Uh, actually, as I've studied the text this week, commentators can't find anything that says that a prophet doesn't arise in Galilee in any extant literature we have. So either they're revealing their prejudice or they're just making stuff up. Maybe both. But see, that's what rebellion and hatred towards God will make you do. When you're angry at God, when you're engaging in willful sin, you can find all sorts of reasons to justify your sin. And listen, your reasons will make total sense to you. <laughs> I'm sure the Pharisees were like, checkmate. But they make no sense to anyone else. The Pharisees are just making this stuff up. And that's why we need brothers and sisters in Christ to say, mm-mm, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. You need to repent and turn to Jesus. Sometimes we need to be that brother or sister for another. All of us experience thirst. It's part of being human. My appeal to you this morning is to turn to and rely on the one who can quench your thirst forever. Rely on his living water. Don't go looking for that which cannot satisfy you. The second to last thing Jesus says in John's gospel, he says two words. He's hanging on the cross. He's about to give up his spirit. And he says, I thirst. Remarkable words. The God of the universe hanging on the cross for sinners. He says, I thirst. Brothers and sisters, Jesus went thirsty so that you wouldn't have to. Let's pray.